Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get plugged into the community. And like Andy was saying, small groups is one of the best ways to do that. So we encourage you to check one of those out. You're welcome in any of those communities, and we'd love to help you get plugged in. So i uh, also love to invite you uh, into the very tail end of our summer sermon series this summer. Uh, this summer, throughout the whole summer, we've been taking a look at a bunch of different Old Testament passages passages, uh, showing how they're really all ultimately about Jesus and the gospel. And uh, so we've been doing that the whole summer. We have two weeks left, this week and next week. And then starting right after Labor Day, we're going to start our fall sermon series, and we're going to be taking a look uh, at the books of First and Second Thessalonians. So epistles in the New Testament, totally different genre, totally different testament, uh, but just as good. And so I can't wait to show that stuff to you. But like I said, two weeks left in, in the Old Testament this summer here. And and what we've, been, what we've been doing throughout our time in the Old Testament this summer is we've been taking a look at a bunch of stories and highlighting how all of them aren't ultimately about just teaching us moral lessons. They're not just about like showing you, hey, be like this person, don't be like this person, do this thing, don't do this thing. That's not the point. Instead, all of them are ultimately meant to point us towards the person and the work of Jesus. And so we saw the, the idea that the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, um, is about Jesus and the God and the gospel, that that's not something. I came up with or some brilliant pastor or theologian, but instead that's uh, what Jesus himself taught. Places like John 5 and Luke 24 where he teaches both the disciples and the religious leaders that all of the scriptures are about him. And so at the heart of our series this summer has been learning to read the Old Testament the way Jesus did with him and with the good news about the gospel at the very center of it all. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we take a look at what is probably one of the most strange and yet also intensely beautiful books in the whole Bible. It's the book of Hosea. Now, Hosea is one of the 12 books at the very end of the Old Testament that uh, are known as the Minor Prophets. And they're, other than the book of Jonah, uh, it's a largely a collection of books that is overall just kind of ignored. Uh, and that's for a couple of reasons. Number one, prophetic books are already hard to read, right? They are kind of like challenging to like, what is going on with any of the things happening here, right? And so people think if these are the minor ones, I'll let someone else do the reading on those, right? Like I'll just, I'll, I'll do the major ones and if we're going to do any, right? Uh, but the truth is, is that the minor prophets are not minor because they are unimportant. They're minor because they're short, and if TikTok has taught us one thing, it's that we love short things, right? And so the minor prophets, they're for you, right? And they're for all of us. But the, the other more, probably more, more concrete reason why they often get skipped over is because uh, they just don't tend to be the most uplifting or encouraging books, right? They're full of a lot of doom and gloom and judgment, and they're honestly just not that fun to read, right? And that's because all of them are written during this time of widespread idolatry and apostasy amongst God's people in Israel. And in fact, the people's sin gets so great and their hearts become so callous towards God that he just straight up kicks them out of the promised land altogether. He allows neighboring nations to conquer them and to carry them off into exile. And so needless to say, the, the time period in which these minor prophets are written, the context is not a high point right, in Israel's history. And so as God begins to speak to his people through the prophet Hosea on the very front end of this really incredibly dark season, this dark period of time in their history, what he's trying to do is to get their attention. 
He's trying to wake them up to the gravity of their sin and to the disastrous consequences that are looming if they do not turn from it in repentance. And because their hearts have become so callous towards God's voice and their consciences have become so numb to their sin and their rebellion, God tells his prophet Hosea, his voice to the people, to do something that is so utterly shocking and scandalous that people cannot help but notice it. And so as we take a look at what God asks Hosea to do this morning, what we're going to see is that he intends to show people a breathtaking picture of what his love for them is really like. A stunning picture of his love for them because you see what God realizes, what he knows about the people that he has loved and made is that it is only when we see the stunning reality of his love for us that will be awakened to the magnitude of our own sin against him. You see, God's not trying to threaten his people with judgment, right? He, he's not trying to scare them straight. He's trying to warn them of sin's consequences in their lives and to woo them back towards him in love. And so yes, Hosea, as you will see, is a bit of a strange book but it is also captivating and beautiful, and I cannot wait to show it to you this morning. And so with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll see if we can't find Jesus in the pages of Hosea together. Let's pray. Lord God, thanks so much for you and for our time together in your word this morning. We are so grateful for it. And as we study this kind of strange book, Hosea and the Minor Prophets, God, we ask this morning that you might be gracious to help us to see your son Jesus in the pages of all of it, that the good news of the gospel might shine forth in our hearts and that we might see that this, like all the other books, is really all about you. God, guard us from moralism and legalism and guard us from just trying better and doing harder and instead captivate us with this picture of your love for us that draws us towards holiness. And so we need you to do that. I cannot do it, but you can. And we ask God that you would, God, for our good and ultimately for your glory as we live lives of worship unto you. So we pray uh, for all of that. We need you, God. We pray. Amen. All right. Well, um, I know I said that the minor prophets are called minor because they're short, but Hosea is 14 chapters, so we're not reading the whole thing, right? Uh, instead, uh, in our time this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on chapter 3, which kind of serves as the climax for the whole book, and then just also the first couple of verses in chapter 1, because they kind of set up the whole thing for us. So it uh, begins this way in Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beri. During the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, when the Lord began to speak to Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so he married Gomer, daughter of Dablaim, and, and she conceived and bore him a son. Chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lathek of barley. And then I told her, you are to live with me many days and you must not act unfaithfully or be intimate with any man and I will behave the same way towards you. 
For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Now, like I mentioned, the book of Hosea, the whole point of the book, is that God's writing to a people who are just numb to their own sin and their hearts are hard towards him. And so God's trying to wake his people up to the seriousness of their sin. And the way that he's going to do that is by contrasting it with this picture of his stunning love for them. You see, the the only way their callous hearts and numb consciences are going to see the true magnitude and the ugliness of their sin is if God juxtaposes it with something that is so altogether otherly different than it. If he shows them this stunning picture of his love for them, you see, it's kind of like the stars in the night sky. The only way you see them is when they're contrasted against the blackness of night. And that's what God's trying to do. He's trying to give this contrasting picture, this black and white picture, so that they might see things the way they really are. And the way God goes about showing this contrasting picture to his people is by giving them an example that they can see firsthand in the relationship between his prophet Hosea and a woman named Gomer. I know it's a rough one, right? That's not not one you're going to name your own children, hopefully, right? And so if we take a look at the picture of God's love that their relationship is meant to paint for us, I want to highlight for you six things this morning that we learn about God's love that not only teach us about what God's love is like, but that help us to see our sin rightly and to turn from it. The first thing I want to show you this morning is we see right away in, in verse two that God's love is initiating. See, the very first words in God's instruction to Hosea in verse two is to go. See, he's the one who is supposed to take the first step. He's the one who's supposed to reach out. He's the one who initiates with Gomer. Hosea is not responding to Gomer's affections for him, right? It's not like she's been dropping hints and he's just kind of dumb and blind and hasn't caught up, right? But now he's like, oh, wow, this person's really interested in me, right? That's, that's not what's happening. No, Hosea goes and pursues her and he initiates a relationship with her. And as we'll see again in chapter three, when their relationship has been utterly disintegrated by sin and and by infidelity, she, uh, Hosea goes again and initiates with her again. You see, Hosea's love for Gomer is initiating because God's love for his people is always initiating. See, throughout the Bible, God is always the one who initiates, and we are always the ones who respond. We don't go looking for him. He comes looking for us. We don't go seeking him out, offering him our love. He comes seeking us out, and he offers us the kind of love and relationship we are so desperately looking for. See, the kind of love and relationship God initiates with us is not some generic, all-purpose, general version. See, the kind of love God wants to initiate, as he does with Hosea, it's a spousal kind of love. See, and that's the second thing we see about God's love in the passage. See, God doesn't tell Hosea to befriend Gomer. He doesn't tell him to adopt her. He doesn't tell him to just take care of her. He tells Hosea in verse 2, go and marry her. See, because the kind of relationship that God wants to have with his people, the kind of love that he wants to show them, is not just the love of a friend, and it's not just the love of a brother, or even the love of a parent or a father. As important and biblical as those images and metaphors absolutely are, 
You see, God wants to show the kind of people he wants, love he wants to show his people is a spousal kind of love. You see, the love of friends and family are incredibly important. But God says, if you want to understand the kind of relationship he longs to have with his people, those pictures do not go deep enough. They don't embody the kind of intensely personal, deeply intimate, endlessly enduring, and exclusive relationship he wants to have with us. You see, the love of a spouse is unique from all those other kinds of love. It's because in marriage, the kind of love that you're giving to someone is both complete, right? It's exhaustive, and it's also exclusive. See, a husband and a wife are saying to each other in marriage that I'm giving myself completely to you, right? All I have, all I am is yours, and vice versa. I'm not holding anything back from you, right? Two people become one. Two names become one. Two homes become one. Two bank accounts become one, right? It's about a all-together, all-encompassing bringing of two things, two parties into one new unity, See, but spousal love isn't just complete and exhaustive, it's also exclusive. You see, in a way that the love of friends or siblings or parents just isn't. You see, the love of a husband has for a wife and vice versa is the kind of love that doesn't just say, I give myself to you wholeheartedly. It says, I give myself to only you wholeheartedly. I'm not giving myself to, in, in this way, to anyone else. The love that I have for you is a love that is unique. It's exclusive for you. See, and staying true to those promises is the very definition of what it means to be faithful. See, in this kind of complete and exclusive love, that's the type of love that God wants to have with his people, the type of relationship he wants to have with them. Throughout the Old Testament, God is constantly saying that he is the husband and that Israel, his people, are his bride. In the New Testament, Christ is referred to the bridegroom and the church, God's people, are referred to as the bride. And what characterizes God as a husband and a groom over and over and over and over again is that he is both wholeheartedly, unreservedly giving himself to his people and that he is unrelentingly faithful to them. It's a relationship that's characterized by exhaustivity and exclusivity. See, but what's even more striking than the nature of God's love that we see in Hosea is the object of his love. You see, the type of woman God tells Hosea to go and marry in verse 2 is a promiscuous woman. See, the kind of person God wants Hosea to offer his exclusive, complete, exhaustive spousal love to is someone who he knows will not reciprocate it. Someone who he knows will be unfaithful to him. Someone who will break his heart and who will betray him. You see, the third thing we see about Hosea is that God's initiating spousal love. It's not blind. It's not blind. Hosea knew what he was signing up for. This wasn't blind puppy love. It's not like they'd been dating for two weeks and had never had an argument and were just like infatuated with each other. No, from the very beginning, Hosea saw Gomer clearly because God told him to marry someone who he knew wouldn't just betray him in the future. The reason he knew it is because she was characterized by unfaithfulness now, already. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like just the absolute worst ministry assignment of all time, right? 
Go give yourself wholeheartedly, exclusively to someone who you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, will not do the same for you. And so Hosea offers his initiating spousal love with eyes that are wide open to the reality of the situation, knowing that Gomer will be unfaithful to him, just like God knew that his people would be unfaithful to God. And shock, that's exactly what happens. If you continue reading in chapter 1, what you find is that Gomer gives birth to three children. Only one of them is Hosea's. It's not even the half of it. In chapter 2, she's just kind of hopping from one lover to the next in broad daylight. Eventually, she moves in with some dude. And by, the, by chapter 3, we find that things have gotten so bad that she's not just living with some other guy. She is owned by him. She is in slavery. And even though it is a slavery of her own making, which is obviously a horrific situation for her, can you imagine for even a moment how utterly gut-wrenching that would have been for Hosea? To see a woman that he chose to love wholeheartedly and exclusively betray him so repeatedly, so publicly, so completely, Some of you know what that feels like. Some of you know firsthand what that's like. Some of you know secondhand, because you've been a part of families that have been torn apart by that kind of betrayal. You see, it's not just the ultimate heartbreak. It is the ultimate humiliation. And that's the point. See, that's the point that God is trying to make. He wants his people to see that their sin, namely their idolatry, their worship of other gods, is the exact same thing as what Gomer is doing to Hosea. He wants them to see that spiritual idolatry is just like marital infidelity. It is the same thing. It's so easy for us to look at our sin and just think like, it's just not that big of a deal, right? To look at the idols that we're tempted to worship, the things that we let control us and be the consuming desires in our hearts, both whether it's surface ones like people and money and stuff and lust, or whether it's the underlying source idols of power and control and comfort and approval. And just to think, yeah, that's a problem, but it's not that big of a problem. I mean, I only worship that stuff sometimes. I'll work on it when I have some more time or when things really get bad enough. You see, but Hosea, in in Hosea, God's trying to shake us awake to the reality that because his love for us is a spousal kind of love, that when we worship other things, they're not just little dalliances. They are covenantal betrayal. Those raisin cakes we're so enamored with that are just, they're not just tasty, idol worshiping snacks. It's like cheating on our spouse. It's a trampling on the very heart and the very love of God. You see, Hosea's marriage to Gomer wasn't just meant to show us what God's love is like, it's meant to help us to see that our sin is actually spiritual adultery. So you and I, just on the front end, you are not Hosea in this story. 
None of us are Hosea in this story. We are all Gomer. We are the cheating spouse who is trampling on the heart of God so boldly, so unashamedly, so repeatedly, and it's like stabbing God in the heart and not even noticing. You see, it's only when you see your sin and your idol worship for the callous spiritual adultery it really is that the next thing we see about God's love in Hosea will be able to shine as brightly and as beautifully as it needs to. See, because the fourth thing that we see about God's initiating spousal love for unfaithful betrayers like you and me is that it is relentless. It's relentless. Chapter 3 opens and Gomer is in the arms of another lover and God tells Hosea, go show your love to your wife again. Just, wanna, just, like, just let me pause for a minute and let that sink in for you, what God just asked him to do. Gomer is still in the arms of her now umpteenth adulterous partner and God tells him, go again. Go again. Not, not go get her. Not, no, not go bring her back. Go and show your love to her again. You see, both God and Hosea had every reason to walk away from their unfaithful spouses. Every reason and be fully, completely justified. Not to mention the fact that according to Jewish law, Hosea would have been well within his rights to have Gomer put to death for that level of infidelity. And yet astonishingly, as a picture of God's own relentless love, Hosea goes again to show his love to her. And it's like in him, God is telling his people, don't, telling Hosea, don't give up on her. Because I have not given up on you. Friends, are you starting to see the magnitude of God's love for you. Are you starting to see it? You see, it's in the midst of his people's sin and their idolatry and their rebellion, not when they admitted what they were doing was wrong, not when they had seen the horror of their betrayal for what it was. While they were still in bed with other gods, the bridegroom comes not to grab them by the arm and yank them away, but to graciously demonstrate again his unrelenting love for them. And he's not driven by anger or revenge or getting even. He is driven by love and compassion. In chapter 11, God speaks about his love for his people in the midst of all of their rebellion. He says this in verse 8, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over My heart's changed within me, and all of my compassion is aroused. You see, God is the ultimate betrayed spouse, and yet in love, he comes back to his people again and again and again and again. Not to rip them away from their sin and rebellion, but to woo them out of it by showing his great love for them. And what God's unrelenting love leads him to do for his unfaithful bride is to buy her back at great 
personal cost. See, that's the fifth thing we see about God's love in Hosea. It redeems at great personal cost. You see, God told Hosea to go again and show his love to Gomer while she's still in the arms of another lover. But in verse 2, we find out that she couldn't leave those arms even if she wanted to. And there's no indication throughout the whole book she was even trying to get out of that situation. She's become a slave and she needs to be bought back, redeemed out of her slavery to this most recent one. And so Hosea, as a picture of God's redeeming love, demonstrates his own love for Gomer by buying her back out of slavery. And while the commentators all point out that the price that he paid was equivalent of what any ordinary slave would cost, what's clear is that by the way in which he pays the price, that it was a cost that absolutely bankrupted him. You see, verse 2 reads, So I bought her back for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lathek of barley. You see, the cost of an ordinary slave in those days was 30 shekels of silver, and Hosea only has 15. He has to come up with the rest. He has to pay the rest in kind, which means he didn't have it. He didn't have it. In other words, he spent every last cent he could scrape together. He raided every emergency account. He pulled everything out of savings. And it still wasn't enough. He had to put a second mortgage on the house. You see, the actual cost was not that high. But for Hosea, it cost him everything he had and more. And so at enormous personal cost, Hosea goes again and shows Gomer his love by setting her free from slavery to sin she's not even trying to leave. And in verse 3, we see that he brings her home to live with him again, and he renews his covenantal promises of faithfulness to her. But he lays out some ground rules that aren't meant as punishments in any way, but instead as a path towards restoration towards purity, towards oneness again in their relationship. See, because the fifth thing that we see about God's love in Hosea is that it is sanctifying. See, God's love always brings about holiness and purity in his people. Verse 3 says, Then I told her, you're to live with me many days, and you must not act unfaithfully or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you, for the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. You see, Hosea calls Gomer back to complete and exclusive faithfulness to him. And he promises again that he will be the same towards her. He doesn't have a get-out-of-jail-free card. He doesn't have a free pass for himself. No, he is exclusively, exhaustively committed himself to her as well. But things don't go back to normal like nothing ever happened. You see, there's this season of trust building and of purification that needs to happen. And it's demonstrated by not just removing, but by not returning to old patterns of temptation and of sin and of, and of idolatry. Just like one commentator puts it, God was going to do for his own people in exile by stripping away every political and military office, every cultic entity, every substitute for direct dependence on him and his word. So again, this is not punishment. The season of intentional nearness and yet segregation of Gomer 
and Hosea and Israel and God was always about purification and rededication and renewal and relationship. See, God's love for his people is always sanctifying. It is never punitive. Yes, there are consequences for our sin. There are results of our rebellion from God and that come about in our lives. But it's not God's punishment for us. See, in fact, it's in the midst of those seasons that God draws himself even closer to his people. He shows his love for us by reminding us of his faithfulness while we're still figuring out what it even means to be faithful to him. See, Hosea could have taken Gomer home and made him his own slave, and he could have made her life miserable and constantly reminded her of all her failures and all her infidelities. He could have forced her to experience and to feel the betrayal and the humiliation that he had experienced, but he doesn't do any of that. Instead, as a loving husband, he seeks to purify his bride, to make her holy. Nancy Guthrie puts it this way, Hosea not only wants to have her in his home, he wants, to ha- he wants Gomer to have him in her heart. You see, the only way you grow in faithfulness to God is when you see that reality. When you see that his faithful love towards you is the very thing that empowers your faithfulness to him. One pastor put it this way, he said, God's love is the power that liberates us from captivity, not the reward for having liberated ourselves. The only ones who get better in the Christian life are those who know that their acceptance does not depend on them getting better. You see, it's God's faithfulness to us that empowers our holiness. It's not the other way around. Your faithfulness to him is not the thing that merits his faithfulness to you. It's his faithfulness to you in spite of yourself. That's the one thing that empowers your faithfulness to him. See, his love is sanctifying. And how beautiful and compelling and breathtaking is this picture of God's love we see in Hosea, is it not? It is initiating and spousal It's not blind, it's fully aware, and yet it is altogether relentless. It is redeeming and sanctifying at great personal cost. And the question we're left with as we take a look at this captivating picture of God's love is how can that possibly be true? How can God's love really be like that? How can a God who is holy and just be that loving and that gracious? Is he just ignoring all the unfaithfulness? Is he just sweeping it under the rug? Is it just out of sight, out of mind? Like, what is happening there? Oh, no, friends. Your spiritual idolatry, your infidelity has not been ignored and it is not excused It has been paid for by the blood of Jesus. You see, all the consequences of their sin and ours, of Gomer's and Israel's and ours, it's fallen on Jesus. Don't you see it has to be him on every page? 
See, the whole book of Hosea is full of the consequences of Gomer and God's people's sin. And it's warning after warning after warning after warning. And that if you look through all of these warnings and all of the just judgment that is due their sin, what begins to jump out at you is that Jesus experienced all those same things. In chapter 2 alone, we read about God who is, promises that he will strip his people naked and put their shame on full display, that he'll make them like a desert and slay them with thirst, that, he will, that he's going to withhold his love and keep his mercy back from them. And yet on the cross are those not the very things we see Jesus himself enduring in our place. For he was stripped naked and shamed. And he was desperate with thirst. And the father turned his back on him, showing him no love, and poured out all of his just wrath for our sin on him, withholding no mercy. See, the ultimate picture of God's love for us, we just get a glimpse of it in Hosea. But the ultimate picture of God's love for us is the cross of Christ. You see, and it is the demonstrated love of God for us that we are remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. You see, what we're reminding ourselves of is that it's his body and blood that were broken and shed so that unfaithful betrayers like you and me might be, might be wooed back to their true and ultimate spouse. See, community doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. It's an opportunity for you to remember that in the midst of all your unfaithfulness, not only was God faithful to you, but he, pray, he paid the ultimate price so that even when you were in your sin, not even looking for a way out, you might have one. And so if you put your trust in Jesus to be the embodiment of God's faithful love to you and you have bound yourself to him by faith and repentance, or you do for the first time this morning, then I want to encourage you during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Dip the bread in the juice and let it be a poignant remembrance of all that Jesus has done for you. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what it means for him to be your faithful spouse. And if he's even the one you think is right for you, then I want you to know that you are welcome here. And your questions are welcome. And your doubts are welcome. And the process is welcome. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. Because God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions his people were really good at doing that while the minor prophets wrote. See, God is not after the religious rituals. He's after a heart that loves him completely and exclusively. Not to get something from him, but in response to all he has given you already. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is and River City is, and we would love to help you get to know him. So wherever you're at this morning, as we sing, as we take communion, as we 
as we celebrate the gospel together, I want to encourage you, talk with God. I want to be clear with you this morning. The point of Hosea is not about teaching you what your love for your spouse should be like. The point of Hosea is not a guide to loving an unfaithful spouse. It is not an answer to the question about when divorce is permissible. That misses the point entirely. Hosea is not about what you are supposed to do for God. If it is, it crushes you. Instead, Hosea is all about what God has done for you. You see, you and I are not Hosea in this story, God is. We are Gomer. We're the promiscuous woman. We're the unfaithful spouse who is characterized by repeated and habitual betrayal. And the invitation is that we might look in the mirror and that we might see our sin for what it really is. That we would see the things that we've excused as little dalliances, as guilty pleasures, things that don't really matter, are actually spiritual adultery. Where do you turn when you are worried? When you're stressed? Where do you look to for financial security? Is that God or is it something else? When you are worried, do you double down on control and the need to, if you can just get all of the variables, if you can just wrap your hands around them and get everything squared away, then that's what will bring about the result you need. When you're, when you're stressed, where do you go for comfort? Is it the arms of another lover? Is it just little distractions? Or is it the very embrace of God who knows what you need? Where do you look for financial security? Is it your 401k and your income and your financial advisor's advice? Or is it the promises of God? You see, God wants to be our joy and our delight and our confidence. He wants to be the one we go to with everything. And when we look to other things, that is not a small deal. It's like we're cheating on our spouse. Except he's the only spouse who has loved us perfectly. You see, but it's not guilt and shame that God wants us to wallow in. He's not out to show us our sins so we'll think we're terrible people. The thing he wants us to be awestruck by as the passage ends is his love and blessing. See, it's the grandeur of his love in spite of all of our sin that we are meant to be captivated by in Hosea. Famous Puritan preacher Thomas Chalmers, he called this the expulsive power of a new affection. He wrote, neither you nor anyone else can dispossess the heart of an old affection. The heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection, the only way to stop worshiping other things is by the expulsive power of a new one. And if that new affection be the love of God, it shall draw the heart of the sinner towards him. Do you see? You see what Chalmers is saying and what Hosea is proclaiming is that the only way 
to say no to the strong temptations of sin and idolatry is to replace them and to overshadow them with a stronger affection. See, being captivated with the love of God and his purity and his faithfulness to us in spite of all our unfaithfulness to him, that is the one thing that will empower you to pursue spiritual purity and faithfulness to him. That's the one thing. In other words, it's when you see Jesus' purity for you, when you see his faithfulness to you in spite of all your impurity and all your unfaithfulness to him, when you see all that he sacrificed so that he could be with you, when you see all the price that he paid so that instead of showing you judgment, he might shower you with mercy. It's only when you see him that you will long to be motivated and empowered to be faithful to him. You see, God is not trying to scare you straight. He is trying to woo you back from the edge of sin. In Hosea chapter 2, the whole first half of the chapter is just this list of all of Israel's unfaithfulness to him and this disgusting picture of what it looks like. And what you expect the chapter to end with is, therefore I will judge her. But instead, in verse 14, God says this. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. And I'll lead her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I'll give her back her vineyards. And I'll make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she will respond to me in the days of her youth as in the days that she came out of Egypt. You see, God's not trying to scare you straight. He's trying to warn you and woo you so that you might turn from the disastrous consequences of sin back to his stunning love for you, made known perfectly in Jesus. And my prayer for you this morning as we have taken a look at this breathtaking picture of God's love is that it might melt your heart. That it might give you eyes to see clearly your sin for what it really is. That it's spiritual infidelity. That it's adultery on the most deep and profound of levels. And that in spite of all your unfaithfulness, his relentless spousal initiating redemptive, sanctifying love for you might become an overpowering affection in your heart that would draw you away from sin in glad repentance towards him, your true spouse. And that in turn, that kind of love that he has shown to you might begin to flow out of you towards others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you and we are so thankful that the book of Hosea is not an instruction manual about what we're supposed to be doing. But instead, it is a breathtaking, captivating picture of your stunning love for us. And it's a painful picture, God, because it shows us the reality of our own sin for what it really is. And it shines a light on its ugliness and its betraying power. 
But more than that, Jesus, it shows us your love for us in spite of all of it. And so we come this morning to celebrate communion and to remember the gospel with hearts that are not full of guilt and shame, but with hearts that are full of gladness and who long to repent and turn from our sin back to you because you have loved us in spite of all of it. And so God, bring about your sanctifying love in our hearts and bring about real purity and real holiness in us. Empower us as we respond to your love to be faithful to you. God, we need you for all of it. We can't do it on our own. Might your faithful love for us fuel our faithfulness to you. Amen.